Hey Gratitude Seeker, our guest today has prepared for us a beautiful gift. It's a song written by her that I absolutely love. Without further ado, please enjoy Day of Gratitude. I woke up today and I gazed at the sky I said to myself, how lucky am I The warmth of the sun, the cool mountain breeze The ocean blue and the emerald trees I wanted to find the words to express The measure of my gratitude But two stubborn words Ought to be heard above the multitude. Two stubborn words fought to be heard above the multitude. Thank you, thank you, the one true source of life. Thank you, thank you. For my blessings and my strife Thank you, thank you for your love When times were rough Thank you, thank you I could never thank you enough I woke up today and I wanted to say What is so special on Gratitude Day My family and friends, my comrades in peace May they be fruitful and their numbers increase I wanted to sing a song that would bring A measure of my gratitude But two stubborn words fought to be heard Above the multitude Two stubborn words Fought to be heard Above the multitude Thank you, thank you My extended family Thank you, thank you For the times you nurtured me My beloved community Hi Gratitude Seeker, welcome to a new episode of the Gratitude Podcast. Today with us we have Ruth Broider Sharon. She's a filmmaker, an author, a journalist and also the creator of Interfaith, the musical. She's been working internationally in uh, Interfaith for more than 30 years now, before it was cool, before it was something that people would do. And uh, she's one of the pioneers in the field. And I'm really happy to have her here today with us because 
one of the things that I I love about gratitude is that it connects faiths. It's it connects people from different religions, from different uh, spiritual practices, and I'm really happy to to be able to to speak about this with someone with so much experience in the field. So, Ruth, welcome to the Gratitude Podcast. Thank you, thank you. Just delightful to be with you. <laughs> My pleasure. So let us know a little bit more about uh, your work, what you've been doing in, in this area of interfaith relations. Well, people always ask me, how did it all start? And uh, I would say that my wake-up call uh, actually began when I was at, uh, at university. And uh, after, at the end of my first year, Um, I was living on campus only the latter part uh, of the year because I lived close enough to commute, but in the wintertime when a lot of students dropped out, I had an opportunity to live on campus. And then uh, we were participating in a lottery and we all drew numbers and the person who would draw the lowest number would have opportunity to choose first housing. And uh, I had already decided with three other young women, one, two were Catholic, one was Protestant, and I'm Jewish, we decided we would all live together the following year. And lo and behold, I drew the number two, which would mean I would be the second person allowed to choose housing. And this is in Chicago, I'm talking about in, uh, in Illinois. And um, the, the other girls were told by my house mother, that they should find another roommate that I wouldn't be able to live with them. And they didn't understand why, and I didn't understand why. And finally, I was told that I had to go speak to the director of housing. And uh, at that meeting, uh, when I was trying to understand why I was suddenly being asked to leave campus when I was a, an all-A student and I was active in school, and, and they w- you would think they would be proud to have me on the campus, <laughs> he suddenly said to me, well, why don't you talk to your rabbi? And I was so stunned. I said, well, why, why would I talk to my rabbi? And he said, well, you know, for dietary reasons and so forth, so that you could eat kosher meals. And I, it was one of these you know, unforgettable moments when I said to myself, the director of admissions of the university is worried if I can eat a kosher meal or not. It just, it just did not make sense to me. And I realized, this is anti-Semitism. I'm being denied housing because I'm Jewish. And that's the way, you know, I left his office and the world had changed for me that day. It was really a very strident and upsetting wake-up call. And the first thing I did immediately was to join the Human Relations Committee on the campus, which was trying to help African students get local housing because local residents weren't eager to let them live there. You know, they didn't like their cooking smells. They had all kinds of reasons why they, they didn't want them to live there. And so, you know, I was trying to do something to help another group of people. But at the same time, I was keenly aware of the fact that in, in the world that I thought was friendly, there was hostility to people like me simply because I was Jewish. And it was um, shocking. It was shocking. And so that way, I would say that's really when I started to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, how 
how the world goes, how the world spins. Mm -hmm. And so after, when I graduated, I graduated with a degree in journalism and, um, and especially, especially in Latin American politics. And, and I set out on a journey of a year and a half and I traveled during 18 months. I was in 19 countries and 54 cities in Latin America. And I lived mostly with families while I was there. I wrote articles for a local newspaper and, it was my first uh, real understanding of how you know the rest of the world lives, and I had a chance to be up close and personal with, because I wasn't living in hotels, I was living with families to see family dynamics and see how people behave and their cultures, their culture, their customs, their rituals. And um, I fell in love with the continent, and I spoke fluent Spanish by the time I returned. <laughs> and I had the awkward situation of, coming back speaking English with a Spanish accent <laughs> and having everybody think I wasn't from where I really was born, but thinking I was a foreigner and, and starting to feel like a foreigner in my own country. It was really a fascinating time when you talk about the questions we ask ourselves, like, who are we really? What's our identity? Mm. Where are we home? What's our language? How do we communicate? What if people think we are someone that we're not? What if we want to be someone we're not? And sometimes when you're traveling and you're on your own, you actually have a, a chance to experiment and pretend to be someone you're not, and who would know the difference? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I pretended I was Chilean from Chile. <laughs> and I got into big trouble. <laughs> anyway, so that, and from there, <clears throat> Later, I came back to the United States. I worked for the Associated Press, uh, writing news summaries. I was very disenchanted with people, colleagues I met, how limited they were, how uh, ignorant they were about the world and politics. And then I took off for Europe, but I lived there for a while. And then I went to Israel and lived in Israel for almost 10 years. And I wow. started to work there for the documentary department of the Israel, new, new Israel television. And that's where I got a lot of my early experience. And then I was thrown headlong into the, the biggest, one of the biggest, most intractable conflicts in the world there. And <clears throat> trying to figure out why it is that we couldn't live in peace with our Palestinian neighbors. And so I've always been, it's something that's always been at the back of my mind and in my heart of wanting to find a solution to the Middle East crisis because I feel that we actually are not even cousins there. We're brothers and sisters. Hmm. So, um, but my, I would say my, my activism as, a, as an interfaith activist began while I was making a film about Passover Mm -hmm. in the 90s and I decided to invite people who were not Jewish to a, a Passover Seder which is a big festival we have every spring uh, it usually coincides with Easter and actually <clears throat> it's believed that the Last Supper was actually Jesus and his disciples having the Passover Seder together so mm -hmm. there's a direct connection there and anyway I invited 85 people <laughs> to the Seder and people told personal stories or music and arts and crafts for the children and 
And I saw that people who were not Jewish were really resonating with the theme of, of freedom, of universal you know, liberation from servitude, from slavery. And then it occurred to me, well, you know, we don't all pray to God the same way. Some of us don't even believe in God, but there's one thing we can all agree on, on the importance of freedom. And so I thought, what a great theme to use to bring people from different backgrounds and communities together. And <clears throat> I thought, well, I'm going to look for other people who are celebrating Passover and who aren't necessarily Jewish and find out what draws them to this holiday. And so I ended up filming a Seder for battered women, for recovering alcoholics, the Catholic workers, a feminist Seder, men in prison who were not just Jewish, but Muslim, and Christian. And I kept over and over, this theme kept coming up again about why this holiday is so powerful and how it brings people together. And uh, I also discovered a community of 600 African-Americans who were celebrating Passover because their pastor believed that you can't fully appreciate the life of Jesus unless you understand who he was as a Jew. And that mm -hmm. means celebrating the Passover Seder. And it was as a result of that encounter that I had a chance to speak to a black church in Watts in Los Angeles. And uh, he called me to the pulpit and he gave me a blessing for my work of conciliation and he gave me the microphone. And I stood in front of this congregation. I didn't know any of the people there. I had no idea what I was going to say. And I started out by saying, I have a dream. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately, the entire congregation got so excited. They said, tell it, sister, tell it, you know. And I talked about the possibility of one day in the future that we would all be sitting around the table of humanity together and we would be appreciating how important freedom is for all of us and that there would be a point in time when someone would there would be technology available and at the time it wasn't quite there it was almost there this was in the early 90s right it would be a possibility for someone in japan to ask the question you know why is this night different from all other nights and someone in holland would answer and i just saw it all like this huge it was an enormous vision of people coming together in Mount Sinai were President Sadat of Egypt. This was after he was assassinated, but he had, he had, had a dream of building a sanctuary, of uh, interfaith sanctuary at Mount Sinai where people from all over would come and worship together. And I saw him in the background smiling, and I just had this amazing image of huge table with people from all over the world sitting together and celebrating freedom of Passover. And when it was over, when I finished, a beautiful black woman came up to me. She was a minister, and she said to me, so uh, how many people do you think you'll have going, and do you think you'll have them coming from Philadelphia? <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and so she said, you know, that trip where people from all over the world are gathered together to celebrate. I said, I said this was a, a vision. I, I don't know. And so she said, well, I want to be there with you when you do that. Wow. And we exchanged phone numbers and uh, she kept calling me. And finally, I just said to her, why don't you come to my house for Friday night for a Shabbat dinner with my family and we'll talk. 
And um, I was work busy working on my film. I mean, basically the film was what I was most invested in at the time because I thought the film would be the perfect vehicle to describe what I was discovering about unity and and how we could come together. And but at that dinner, uh, we sh she's black and I'm Jewish, and we were talking. We were lamenting about the fact that at one time during the civil rights movement, the black and Jewish communities had been so tight, so close, so supportive of each other and now suddenly there was this was at a time when there was a lot of uh, when Reverend Farrakhan was speaking publicly against the Jews there was a lot of distress there was the friendships had dissolved and we were saying you know we we're we're two tribes of people that really understand each other we understand what it means to be slaves so we'll use this trip well let's let's do it let's bring people together from all different communities, but let's concentrate on bringing blacks and Jews together to make this interfaith pilgrimage. And when I said that to her, she she looked like she was going to faint, and <laughs> she started pounding her chest. And we were all we said, Dolores, what's what's going on? And she said, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. But I've had three ministers prophesy to me, and they all said the same thing. They said I would be leading the most unusual trips to the Holy Land and it would be blacks and Jews. Oh my God. <laughs> and that was it. We looked at each other and it was like, you know, you talk about the the hand of God descending on your shoulder, you know? Mm -hmm. We just we just we knew that this is what we were supposed to do. And so we did it. We started organizing it and we started taking these pilgrimages of, of people from different, all different communities, but the first time we, we did it in 93, we concentrated on inviting blacks and Jews to travel together. And, um, and it grew and um, we started to realize that, you know, when you travel together, you have a different experience than if you just meet for an evening or you have a talk and so mm. forth, but when you're traveling, and the, the talks we had at night in the interfaith talks we had were difficult. They were not, they were not just pleasant and exchanging information that all, all our prejudices came up and they were there bold and staring us in the face. And sometimes questions were asked that we were, there were no answers to the questions. Hmm. So it was a very profound journey. And I, I kept doing it with, with, Dolores for several years and then we did it in 93, 94, 95 and they were growing and in the year 2000 I did it again this time I did it without Dolores because she was doing other things by then but guess where the, most of the people came from in 2000 when I did it the last time I did it hmm. Philadelphia <laughs> <laughs> so you know how do we understand all that you know, it's uh, miraculous <laughs> things happen all the time that we are, we don't, we, we, we have clues to the miracles, but we don't really understand them sometimes until retroactively we can look back and we say, isn't that phenomenal? Like who, who would have known, who would have guessed? And, and that propelled me into becoming an activist of, of actually seeking avenues, opportunities, activities, encounters, you know, to bring people together and not just for dialogue, 
but that dialogue would be at the basis of it. But the idea was to develop trust and eventually friendship, and then for us to see beyond our stereotypes and our differences. So um, that's what I've been involved in for 30 years. I helped to found, <coughs> excuse me, I helped to found the Southern California Parliament of the World's Religions um, in Los Angeles in 2007. A group of us started it, and then for the for 10 years I was uh, served as co-chair, and we put together really you know fascinating activities and encounters. We initiated an event called Seas of Peace in which we invited all local communities that teach medica meditation and contemplation to come and share their practices with the wider community. So we had uh, 16 different meditating communities coming together. And that was the first year, and people loved it so much that the second year we will do it again, but we thought this time we're going to bring uh, social, social action organizations so that people could also find places where they can invest their energies in this process of, mm. of us doing not just inner work, but outer work as well. And Marianne Williamson, who is uh, running for president, she's one of the candidates for the Democratic Party, um, she was our keynote speaker that year. And she said that, you know, it's unless the people who are doing the meditation are also doing social action, and unless the people doing social action are also doing inner work, there is no way to make this all happen, that there has to be a bridge between those two worlds. And, um, and of course, now that she's running for president in office and she's speaking about the, the spiritual side of politics, you know, of, of using love as a motivating factor for running a government in the world, um, I... I don't think she'll be elected, but I think she has raised the level of our conversation very significantly. And she's talking about things that we all, she wants to establish a department of peace. Hmm. Well, we have a department of war, you know, why not have a department of peace? Anyway, I've been talking for a long time. I don't give you a chance. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. No problem. I'm very fascinated, fascinated about uh, what you are saying and, um, and just envisioning a world in which you would have a department of peace and would put love as as a main uh, driver for yeah. for being in power is is something quite beautiful to to think about. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like like I was saying in the beginning, for me at least, what I have seen studying different different faiths is that love and and gratitude are if you if you look for it are present in all uh faiths that are that are that have a positive um perspective Absolutely. and I actually want to share a funny story about that when you go. I don't mean to interrupt you. So yeah, please do, please do. But the only thing that I wanted to to add to this is that um, I think the, these these kinds of truths that are beyond uh, the different ways in which we pray or the different names we tell we uh, we have for God 
you know, or the universe. I think these, these are so powerful and these are so important in creating bridges between people. But let us know. <laughs> well, so first I'll tell you an interfaith joke, which I thought I made it up, but then I hear some, heard someone else tell it. So I thought, well, maybe I didn't make it up. <laughs> it just exists there in the cosmos and I just brought it down, you know. Yeah. So, anyway, so here's, here's the way it goes. So all the ascended masters of all the different religions of the world are invited to come to a very special conference in one place. And they rent an enormous hotel with an enormous ballroom because there are so many ascended masters and they want to make sure that everyone is present. And so finally in the grand ballroom, all the ascended masters are there and they sit down and they look at each other. And do you know what they say? Nothing. They say, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> That's all. There was nothing else to say. They all got it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> That's exactly what you just said. At that level, there is language is not even necessary because people get it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, like my, my perspective comes from, from my own experience in my family. Um, I'm uh, an Orthodox. My my grandma, which raised me, uh, was a was Catholic, mm-hmm. and uh, my brother, since I've been like seven, he's been into spirituality in general and practicing yoga and um, meditation and things of this nature. And I always had this. Uh, this perspective like in my own family we we were dif- we had different views from from some points of view and um i think it's it, it that led me to 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 look for the the common truths the, the things that we all share mm-hmm. beyond the fact that many so, or most religions think that their religion religion is the best and it's the way to go and uh, i think that's that's a very powerful thing to to see what's the the truth be beyond these uh, these ways of expressing it. You know. Well, I think it's 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 just like it's shocking for a child when he individuates from his mother. You know, mm-hmm. he thinks he he thinks his mother is part of himself until he reaches a certain age, and then. I remember when my rabbi once told us, you realize God isn't Jewish. And there was a stunned <laughs> silence. And, you know, because God is bigger than, greater than, above, beyond, than any, to be limited to one, one way of thought, one religion, one word. And as a matter of fact, in Hebrew, there are so many different names for God, but the 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 real name of God is not even pronounced, and so instead of using that name of God, we just say in Hebrew Hashem, which means the name. The name mm. represents, you know, the name takes the place of saying because you can't really because if you actually put a name to God totally, you would be limiting God just by using the word. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. <laughs> I've I've been also studying the the Hindu uh, religion, and it's so interesting that uh, they they have 
many gods and actually so that they can put a word to all of the facets of god they had many gods that manifested or are manifesting different parts of god and i think that's an interesting way like a different way of um, doing kind of the same thing that that the jews are doing and that the and muslims do also because they have 99 names for god in islam you know and they're all <laughs> different aspects of god but here i want you brought us something really important that i i, I do want to intercede for a moment because most people have a mistaken notion about hinduism they think mm -hmm. it's worship of different deities or idols and the truth is that Hindu Hinduism is also a monotheistic religion, like mm -hmm. the, like the Abrahamic religions. Krishna is the the equivalent of you know we would say for Allah or for Hashem or Jehovah. But what happened is because the different manifestations or emanations or aspects of God's character have been delineated, as you mentioned earlier, some people started worshiping the aspect of God rather than God. And so as a result of it, many people in the world think that Hindus are idol worshipers. But the truth is that the true essence of Hinduism is, is about the oneness and not about Ganesh as a separate God or Durga or, you know, all the, mm -hmm. or Kali or whatever. Those are just different aspects of God. So, I think many people were, are shocked to know, including uh, colleagues and friends of mine who've been involved in interfaith for a long time. Recently, I had to set someone straight about that, about what Hinduism was. She had no idea, and then she wrote me a letter thanking me that I had pointed it out to her because we, we really don't know that much about each other's religions. We only know certain aspects. And when, when National Geographic goes to the countries where Hinduism is celebrated, so they concentrate on showing you the, the, the god Ganesh with garlands around him being bathed in milk as if Ganesh was the true god, and it's not so. So we, we are all victims of, <laughs> of a, a kind of commercialization which robs the religions of their true essence in many cases. And, and so it's our job now as good students and people who are interested in um, really coming to the, the center of what this is all about and that you mentioned of finding that place where we don't have to be separate, even though we are. Well, I, I, there's another song that I wrote that I haven't shared with yet. It's called uh, Say Hello to Diversity. And um, the chorus says, we are different, we are varied, like the flowers of the field. We are diverse like the universe. Our true nature is concealed. We are separate but connected like the planets up above. We are finite and eternal. We are quantum, we are love. Mm -hmm. And I think that holding that thought about our infinity and our finiteness at the same time about being separate and connected, that is one of the most difficult concepts for people to grasp and embrace because of ego, you know? Yeah.
Yeah, but we don't yeah, want. If we lose our ego, we're afraid we'll lose ourselves. <laughs> That's so true, and it's it's such a beautiful perspective and some some beautiful words. But speaking of uh, of uh, songs, how did the gratitude song come about? Um, it was for the very reason that you mentioned earlier about the faiths coming together on a day where we could all talk about what we are grateful for and give thanks. And we didn't want to do it on Thanksgiving. We wanted to do it as a separate day close to the time of Thanksgiving, but that it would be an interfaith day of gratitude so that each of the faiths could come forward and share from their own tradition about how they show thanks. Hmm. And so I, um, I decided I had to write a song about it. So I woke up. And I went outside, and that's how the song came out. I woke up today, and I looked at the sky. I said to myself, how lucky am I? <laughs> <laughs> that's so beautiful. And it's, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm doing on the podcast as well. Like I'm, I'm bringing people from all kinds of faiths to share how, how they express their gratitude or their... Uh, faith teaches them about gratitude because by by seeing by hearing all of these stories you you get to understand that there's something in common that we all have and um like i said for for me what i've come to to understand is that love and, and gratitude are are common and even though they might be hidden in in fear or in conflict or in different things i i still think that uh they are there absolutely and you know you said about fear and conflict um i was listening to a radio show the other day a syrian woman was being interviewed she formed an organization for women in syria for them to step forward and to take leading roles in helping the community restore itself after all the dreadful things that have happened in Syria, you know, the, both in terms of the government, in terms of the refugee problem, and, and women are taking it on themselves now to, um, to come together, and they, they don't care about whether the men say they're supposed to stay at home or not. They're just, they're saying, you know, sorry, we, there's work here to do and we're going to do it. Hmm. And so the, the interviewer said to the woman, well, what is it that you want? And she said, what we want is we want safe homes to raise our children, to feed them, send them to school, to be educated, to live a good life, to appreciate each other. And you can just take that, George, and, and just... You could just stamp it, you know, and, and put it on every country of every <laughs> around the world, and it would be it would be the same thing that yeah. especially women would say, mothers would say, and um, I just it makes us it makes me so crazy sometimes to thinking about how did we go so far astray? How did mm -hmm. is this what is this some grand exercise God is putting us through so that we can come back to the basics and and appreciate one another. You know, in Islam, there's a very beautiful surah. It's a passage in the Quran, which says, God says, I intentionally made you all different 
so that you would struggle to come together and find a way to coexist. Hmm. So that God actually designed according to the Quran, and I think it's also be true, I would say, of the Tanakh, and, and especially, and also in the New Testament, that, that part of our history of war and so forth is a, is a way of making so significant, because when it's matters of life and death is when we start to pay attention, about what does really God want for us? And, and in the Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible, it's, God says, you are all my children. You know, the, the, Isra the Israelites may be the firstborn in the sense of that of recognizing a nation, but he said, you are all my children. And, and on Passover, when we talk about how the, the uh, Hebrews, they crossed the, the Sea of Reeds and the Egyptians were pursuing them. And finally, the, the the sea closed on them and all the Egyptians were drowned with their chariots and all, everybody was, was uh, the enemies were, were dying and the, and the Israelites were rejoicing and God says, no, don't rejoice because the Egyptians are also my children too. Don't rejoice at your enemy's death. <laughs> and that, that notion, you know, is um, so precious and, but it seems like we don't really, even if we master it in one generation, it cannot be transmitted through our DNA that the next generation has to learn it from going through the same experience. Wow. Hmm. That, that, that's interesting. And I think just, just looking at this possibility of us coming together and seeing that, in fact, we we are all children of god and we are all here together and we have to take care of this planet that we were given together and um just seeing the fact that there, there are differences but that doesn't mean that we we shouldn't love each other we shouldn't appreciate each other and even more so for for the differences that that we have because those bring beauty in, in different exactly. ways. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think that the what's happening with our climate now, and look, the Native Americans have been saying the same thing for 4,000 years. Nobody's paid attention. Finally, we're, we're saying, oh, you know, we have to take care of the earth. It's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, we're stewards and we have to be sure that we care for the earth. But we, we've been hearing that for a long time. We haven't paid attention. But the fact that things are in jeopardy now, that species are dying, that there's whole uh, tribes and communities have to relocate because they don't have enough water because of this. The glaciers are melting. We're, we're, in, we're in dire straits. I don't know whether it's true that there are only 12 years left for us to be on the earth. I, 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 know it's, I find it hard to really understand that. I don't know whether any of us can really... Um, comprehend that but the fact that there is a common challenge now is what's also bringing the interfaith communities together in a very significant way and that is what we have been using a lot in our work together we say 
okay, we have different beliefs, and we're working with atheist groups too, less people who are listening to this podcast who think this is only about those who believe in God and that they're excluded. No, everybody is part of this because this is a common challenge that we all share. Um, and, and there are things for us to do together that are not based on, as you said, how we call God or how we pray to God or thing. It's really based on survival of the species. And, and if we are joined together, we're so much more powerful than if we're just individual little groups of people trying to do something. We know that, you know, Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist said that, you know, you find five committed people together in one group and you can change the world. Hmm. I really believe that. I really believe that. That's so true. That's so true. And I, I was thinking about how all of the, like what we see from on the outside, that's really remarkable. And you can actually get a better sense of things. Like the fact that we were able, thanks to, to, getting together and building something we were able to build all kinds of amazing buildings around the world mm -hmm. and just with the the power of of the group the the power of people coming together and um knowing that they have a, a specific goal that, that they want to create this building let's say and that that's so powerful and when we when we think about all of the gifts that we all have, bringing them together can be amazing. And yeah, I, I totally believe that also about uh, atheists. That's why I'm mentioning the universe because even though you, you might not believe in God or a creator, the universe, it exists and it somehow got to exist. So that's why I'm, I'm mentioning this, this part as well. And I, and I think that one way or another we're we're here you know we we exist somehow so um this fact can bring well, I, us together I, yeah i wanted to bring up the atheist community again because i've started dialoguing with them a few years ago and you know one of the things that became very clear to me is that first of all they feel disenfranchised and alienated the way the gay community did for many years and they feel that they are lesser in the eyes of, of believers, that they're not, they don't occupy the same human space because they don't believe in God. And it's, so it's problematic for them to feel like they're always on the outside you know, of society. And when you talk to them, the thing that becomes eminently clear is that they care about being good parents, they care about values, they care about the environment, they care about good schools, they care about you know, uh, healthy food and so forth. They, they don't care less than people of, of faith or belief do. They just have a different approach to it. You know, they, they like scientific inquiry. That's, that's their, their main... Uh, I actually wrote a song about that too, <laughs> where, where it says, um, uh, you, you, um, you talk about uh, dawnings and awakenings, but you know, baby, show me the math. You know, like they want, they want, they want the math. And, mm -hmm. and since that's their orientation, and so much of what we've achieved technologically is is based on math and science and proof and things like that, repeatable experiments. I mean, it, we we have to we have to find we really we have to find a way 
to have everybody seated at the table. And, um, uh, but what's important is that, that people of goodwill are seated at the table. If people want to harm each other, we're not inviting them to come to the table. We're inviting people of goodwill to, to sit together. And if people are not of goodwill, then we have to figure out how to talk to them in such a way that they would be willing to sit with everybody, not at everybody else's expense, but to be included. And I think we've seen that happen so often that bullies and people who are uh, angry at other people are usually people who have been hurt. Mm-hmm. And so we, it, the same thing is true on the, from a family micro level to macro level that countries also behave that way when they feel left out, when they feel neglected, when they feel less than, you know, they'll act out. And so, so these, these are basic interactive human values that if we can recognize that instead of um, condemning people to the fringes if they don't behave exactly the way we want. If we can, re- and there are a lot of methods today, including um, the, um, I'm trying to think of the name of, um, the diff- there are different modalities now of, of compassionate listening mm-hmm. and um, techniques to use when you're getting together with someone so you can find out what their needs are and find out what it is they wish so that you can address their needs and wish wishes and 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 that thereby solve the problem of animosity and hatred because usually in most cases needs are not being met i even heard the uh, uh boko uh, haram the ones who were responsible for kidnapping girls and using them as sex slaves and you know in africa and so forth that that many of them got involved in that because their local places, their tribes and so forth, they didn't have enough water. And so they started doing these things as a way of gaining power so they could assure the survival of their community. There's always more under the surface than we're aware of when we, when we hear about people and what they're doing in the world. You know, there's always more to the story. Yeah, and unless we, we see what's behind. Right we can we cannot actually solve the problem and and like you said who would think that the this the possible solution for um human trafficking in in africa could be water you know right. like it wouldn't be like the, the first thing that comes to mind mm-hmm. and yeah that's that's very well, interesting i went to a um a conference about uh, four years ago in New York, it was called Religions for the Earth. And one of the participants who was a Sikh gentleman, uh, S-I-K-H, you know, that's the Sikh, they, they, some people call them Sikhs, but they call themselves Sikh, S-I-K-H. Mm-hmm. One of the gentlemen in the audience stood up and he said, he, put, he held up his hand and on each finger he went, you know, refugee problem, trafficking, immigration, climate. He said, you see how we think all these are separate items, separate topics, separate challenges. He said, but do you see how they're all connected at the wrist? Hmm. All the fingers, he said. 
These, this is not just one thing that we have to work on. We have to be working on all these things together because they're all interrelated. And I had never thought about that before. You know how some people have a favorite, um, a favorite cause that they're lining up for. Yeah. And that cause becomes the most important thing they're doing in their life. And they give all their energy and passion to it. And, and that's great. But I think it's also good to take a moment and to step back and to see the interrelatedness of all these different problems. They're all, they all come from a much larger problem of, of, of how we treat each other, about, about resources, how they're distributed around the world, about scarcity, about greed, about, about you know, um, othering making people unlike yourselves other and therefore not deserving these they're all you know about what what is the value of a of a human life if you if you can take a an eight-year-old girl and and make her a sex slave does you know does she have any value these are the kind of questions that that actually go to a much larger issue about how we address creation of god and and god's creatures and the earth and everything therein. Yeah. And by the way, I'm I'm really curious, what do you think we can do, each of us, me, the the listeners, what can we do to, to make this interfaith communication and appreciation um better? Like what can we do to improve things? Well I'm glad you asked me that question because I have an answer <laughs> for it. <laughs> I've given talks all over the world and on university campuses, and and you know the the question always comes: What can one person do, right? Yeah. And so I'm going to explain a, a physical law, which is also a spiritual law, and I think your listeners will will get it. I will I'll explain it graphically, uh, so that you can imagine what I'm talking about. Okay, so. Yeah. I ask everybody who is listening to raise your little finger of your right hand. Just raise it a couple of centimeters, you know, maybe an inch or two. Mm-hmm. Raise it up. And what just happened when you did that is that you caused all the molecules, think of them as bubbles, all the molecules in the rest of the world around your little finger to move by just raising your little finger a centimeter. Hmm. And then usually I have someone in the audience who is a scientist or a physicist, and I say, is that true? Are there any scientists here? And they all say, yes, that's exactly true. We know that by just the smallest, tiniest movement, molecular movement, you can actually affect the entire fabric of the universe, right? And so that's not just a physical principle, that's a spiritual principle, which means then that the smallest act, one small profound act that you do in your life, in your family, in your community, actually affects the entire world. So when I ask people to think about what it is they can do when they go home that day, when they leave the auditorium, after they've heard me speak, what is the one small profound act they could do that could affect the rest of the world? And then I ask them to share with me what came up for them. Well, in one case, 
a man stood up and he said that there were 14 children in his family. Seven of them were Christian and seven had converted to Islam and they didn't talk to each other, the Muslims and the Christians in their own family. And he felt so bad about that. He said, I am going to go home and I'm going to make peace with my brothers and sisters. So if you can imagine just that, his doing that, how many lives would be affected? Not just the lives of his immediate family, but of their children, of their children's children. Yeah, for generations. For generations, right. And it's the same thing with taking care of the earth. You know, you say, oh, what's this business about turning off the water, you know, when you're brushing your teeth? <laughs> like, how, how much difference is it going to make? Well, if you, if you multiply that by the number of people who are now doing that, the number of people who are now recycling, I remember when we didn't have special waste, waste containers for uh, bottles and for plastic and so forth. We do now, and we, we're teaching our children to do that automatically when they're growing up. So. All those things together compounded. It's like compound interest, you know, when you put money in the bank. (laughs) All those things together make a difference. So we don't have to think about starting an entire movement, about organizing an interfaith event for 5,000 people, about, you know, getting seven communities together. We don't have to think on that scale. Listen, after you've been doing this work for a while, you do think on that scale. And I helped organize an interfaith event at the embassies of, uh, the, uh, of Morocco and of Bangladesh in Washington, D.C., because I was intent on making a difference. And so I was playing it big, as big as I could to reach those people. But it doesn't have to be. It's just all you have to know is that even one person can make a difference in the world and in your own community, your own family, in your own life. If you water your friend's lawn when he's on vacation, if he didn't ask you to as an act of kindness, you've made a difference in the world. Yeah, that's that's very true. And we don't think about these these simple things, but they they really have a big impact. And um, since we are nearing the end of our time together, I wanted to ask you, what are you grateful for? Who are the people in your life that you're grateful for? Mm, God, such a long list. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm, I'm grateful to the Creator, first and foremost, uh, for giving me life, for guiding me. And there's a really beautiful blessing in, in Hebrew that we say on special occasions, and I'll, I'd like to say it with you. Uh, and then I'll tell you the other people I'm grateful for. It's mm-hmm. called the Shehechianu prayer. And it goes, the translation is first, uh, thank you, creator of time and space, master of the universe, for breathing life into me, for guiding me, and for bringing me to this special day so that I could be on your podcast. whatever the occasion is it's it never happened before it'll never happen again quite like this and the people who will be listening the first time will be a unique group of people that by the second time it's heard it'll be a different group of people so it's it's to mark the specialness of a moment uniqueness of time so it's in hebrew it's baruch atah adonai eloheinu melcha olam 
שהחיינו וקיימנו והגיענו לזמן הזה. That's that special blessing. And I'm grateful to my, my parents, my sister, my children, my, my friends, my teachers, my, my enemies. I'm grateful to the people who helped me distinguish right from wrong. I'm grateful even for, as the song says, for also my life and my strife. You know, I hmm. think we can't appreciate goodness. We can't appreciate light unless there's also darkness by contrast. So I'm grateful for all the varieties of things. I'm grateful sometimes for even illness because it's it's an opportunity to stop and think about our bodies what they need why why it is we're sick what can we do to replenish ourselves how much we have to be grateful for that we can get up in the morning dress ourselves you know go to work hug someone <laughs> um i have a very long list of people i'm grateful for I can I'm imagine. I'm grateful for you for what you're doing in the world, Georgian. Thank you. Thank you. So am I for you and for all of the work that you've been doing for for so many years. I think it's it's so important and so profound. And I'm sure that like you were saying, many of the the results from this will be seen maybe decades or hundreds of years from now. And Having this kind of vision and this kind of uh, strength to to keep on doing what you're doing is is amazing and it's very inspiring for me. So thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to make a date with you for several hundred years from now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> let's do another podcast and let's look back and see how the world has changed and and maybe we'll be able to see what differences we've made and uh, and we'll also see there's a, a another beautiful hebrew saying that i i think a lot about a lot in this work it says it is not upon you to finish the work but neither can you resist from doing it and that's it that we don't get in our lifetime to finish the work but we still have a responsibility to do even if it's a small part even if it's just raising our little pinky, our little finger, to make a difference in the world. We all have that responsibility. That's an amazing message to end with. And wow, it, it's so strong and it's so true that we have the power to change the world, even with the smallest acts. So thank you so much for being here with us. Let our audience know where they can find you, where can they find yes, your work. Uh, the uh, go to interfaiththemusical.com. Unfortunately, we didn't have a chance to talk about that, which I would love to talk about. Do let us know. Do let us know about that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's on its way, and the album has been released with eleven of the songs, and they're funny and they're poignant, and they the most important thing is that they celebrate our magnificent humanity, and that's something to be celebrated. Amazing, amazing. I love that. And uh, so it's uh, interfaiththemusical.com. Right. Perfect, perfect. And Thank then you. Oh, the, the tagline is um, okay. Broadway bound on the wings of peace. <laughs>
<laughs> you on Broadway, Georgian. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, thank you for being here with us and for sharing so much amazing, uh, so many amazing thoughts and uh, so much wisdom. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. <laughs>